Well, good morning, friends. Uh, I want to invite you to take a Bible and turn it over to Philippians chapter 3. And uh, I also want to mention that if you're here with us visiting this morning and don't own a copy of the Bible, nothing would make us happier today than to give you one, to have you take one that should be provided for you in front of where you're sitting, where, somewhere within arm's reach of you right now, in front of you, on the back of the, the pew or on the back of some of these theater-style seats over here, you should see a, a, a black Bible put into a little cubby hole. That's yours. We'd love for you to take it. And we'd love for you to have the chance to talk to you about what you're going to hear today or what you may read there on your own. Uh, it'll be real helpful to you to have that open in front of you as we enter the next time, uh, the next 30 minutes or so of our time together, because I'm going to be walking verse by verse through a section of this letter and referring back to it over and over, uh, because anything good you're going to hear up, up here today, anything useful to you will only be useful to you because God is in it, because God has spoken through his word to you. And I want you to see that for yourself as we move our way through these verses. So turn to Philippians chapter 3. It's near the very end of, of the Bible, if you're not familiar with it. There's a table of contents that will take you to the right spot. And I want to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 3. Paul writes this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he's got reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. You may be seated. One of the many blessings of having a British immigrant for a buddy and a fellow staff pastor is the solid recommendations on what you might call off-the-radar British TV. By far, so, uh, so, so far rather, the best that I have heard from Jonathan Worsley is a BBC show called The Detectorists. I'm just curious. Anybody ever heard of this show? Show of hands. Anybody heard of this BBC dramedy? That's what I'm going to call it. The Detectorists? No one. You're welcome for what you're about to hear. Uh, I expect you to, to, to streak home and stream this immediately this afternoon. This, this show is awesome. You'll love a lot of things about it. You'll be struck by the amazing acting. It is really, really solid, as usual for the BBC. You'll be struck by the simple beauty of the English countryside. 
You'll be struck by the subtle and hilarious British humor, but maybe what you'll notice most is the absolutely terrible odds against the central quest that dominates this show. The Detectorist is about a couple of buddies who are just a couple of average Joes, really, maybe even a couple of losers, who spend all of their spare time, and it's a considerable amount, searching the English countryside for buried Saxon gold. They've got the latest models of metal detectors. They've got all the right you know, sonar gear or whatever. They're, they're completely decked out in, in, in tools and tool belts. And every evening and every weekend, they go out together into field after field after field, anywhere they've got permission, especially where anybody's turned up something from a recent plowing, searching for gold. But the English countryside is, is huge. There's a lot of dirt out there. And, and basically all of it is created equal. I mean, for, to the naked eye, all you see is, is, is fields of grass and, and upturned dirt. There's no real sign to know where to stop. There's no real sign to know where to, where to focus your time. They just walk row by row, swinging their detectors as they go, waiting for those elusive beeps. And when the elusive beeps come, I was about to say nine times out of 10. I'm just going to go ahead and put it at 99 times out of 100. <laughs> what they find and spend 10 minutes digging up out of the ground is at best something like, uh, like, like the little pool tab on top of a, of a can of Coke. That's what they, 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 this, this one guy's got a whole collection of, of different pool tabs from all the different eras throughout the history of, of canned drinks. The, the, the second season, the very first episode of the second season, they have a flashback to the Saxon era, and a, and a priest who's about to be under attack takes his most precious handwritten, hand-transcribed copy of the scriptures with a beautiful golden clasp over the leather binding, rushes out into the yard near his church, and buries it from whoever it was that I guess was there to burn it. Then you flash forward to these same two losers, using their, their evenings and their weekends, walking the fields, and you as a viewer know exactly where that treasure is buried. In fact, every single episode starts with like a zoomed in under the earth view of this gold and then pans out to these guys in this huge swath of land just looking. And as a viewer, it drives you, it drives you crazy. You want to say, it's, it's here. It's right there. No, not over there. In fact, almost every episode, they park right next to it or right on top of it. There are a couple times where they're just they're detecting right up to it and then just say, okay, let's go to the pub. And they just turn it off right before they get to where the treasury is. It's tormenting you because you want them, you want them to stop digging up rubbish with every single afternoon. And you want them to find gold. The reason I mention this story is that I realized if you were tracking with me as I was reading from the verses that we considered just a minute ago, you may have heard really harsh language from Paul at the very beginning of it. Did you guys notice the sort of flashing neon warning sign that starts in verse two? Look out, he says. Look out for the dogs. It gets worse. Look out for the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. He's coming hard. For some people that he's worried may attend this church of friends where he's slowly blowing onto these coals of, of early initial faith, trying to create flames amongst them. He's worried that that there's teachers on their way that will snuff out this flame that's barely gotten off the ground. 
And I realized that this is harsh language he's using about these teachers. In fact, it, it's almost certain that he's, that he's got in mind a group of people that he wrote about in some of his other letters. Those who were trying to bring over into Christianity some elements of Judaism that would have, that would have added to Jesus as the source of our hope and righteousness before God. That would have said, yeah, you need Jesus, but what you also need are certain rituals that you, that you may need to practice on a daily basis. Or, or you may need circumcision. If you've become a Christian and you're, you're from a, a Greek background and not a Jewish background, you need to be circumcised because no one can be right with God apart from that. He's taking terms that, that they were known to have used for those who were outside of their group. Dogs, evildoers, those who don't practice the law. He's taking their terms and, and turning them back on them and saying, they're the ones you've got to be careful of. And I know, particularly if you're not familiar with Christianity, you hear language like this, and I understand it can come off as really arrogant. Because Paul is baked into this, is Paul's assumption that, that you need Jesus in a way that nothing else can satisfy. That, that, that what they're offering you is not just another way to get to God, but rubbish. And for Paul and for Christianity ever since, there is, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna back this down. There is an unavoidable either or. You can worship, love, trust, and obey Jesus. Or you can worship, love, trust, and obey some other God, maybe even yourself but you can't have both. There's only one way to know and enjoy peace with the God who made you, and that comes only through Jesus. That's Paul's perspective, and I'm raising it right here because I wanna say this. Maybe if what we were talking about was just some aspect of your cultural background, one style of food versus another one, one native language versus another one, it would be really arrogant of Paul to say, look out for that. Focus on Jesus. That's a dead end. Jesus is the way to go. If what we were talking about was some sort of accessory to your life, well, it, it would be arrogant to assume that your way is the only way. If religion were more like music or clothing or our hobbies or our ethnic background or our cultural heritage, then what Paul's putting in front of you here is something that you'd probably want to stay away from. But for Paul, for Christians following his lead, really for the, for the entire scriptures, what's at stake is far different from what you might assume about religion. Jesus is no accessory to our lives, not like a new handbag or a pair of earrings to round out an outfit that already looked pretty good. He's not the final bullet point on a resume. It's already pretty well-rounded and pages long. Jesus is everything. You have him or you have nothing. And if that's your perspective, if that's the truth about who Jesus is, would it really be arrogance for Paul to say, don't dig over there, dig here. The treasure's here, not there. It's not arrogance, friends, that's love. He wants gold for you. And in this passage, to get you where he is, to inflame your heart with what's captured his, Paul gives you three reasons you should want to gain Christ. Three treasures you get if you have Christ that you won't get anywhere else. The passage breaks down as a kind of before and after contrast for him. 
And verse, uh, verses uh, four to six in particular talk about what Paul had before, what he was after before. As, think of him as this metal detector looking for gold. This is where he was searching. This was his ground. And then verses nine to 11 describe what he's got now. Now that he's got Jesus, here's, here's his treasure. Here's what he wants for you. And then the, the two verses in between are just this hinge moment where he says, everything I had before, I counted as loss. It's all nothing. And now here's what I have, that, that, I, that, that I can be found in him, that I could gain Christ. It was worth it. And he wants it for you. And, and what, what I want for you by the end of our time together today is at least a little bit of a taste of why. Why it's worth it to sell all for Jesus. And I want to do that by, by highlighting three things. Three things you gain when you gain Christ that you can't find anywhere else. Friends, here's number one. In Christ, you gain a righteousness that you can't find anywhere else. You gain a righteousness you can't find anywhere else. Look at verse nine with me, would you? This is where, this is where Paul zeroes in on what you get when you get Jesus. Up until this is, is, is his before. In verses 9 to 11, he gives us the after. Here's what you get when you gain Christ and you're found in him. And the first treasure that he mentions, first thing on his mind, is righteousness. For his sake, Paul writes, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. The reason he counts everything from his past as just a pile of rubbish is that he may gain Christ and the righteousness that only comes through him. I know this word righteousness might not be a very familiar word to you. It isn't one we use that often in our normal speech. But it's a really, really important word in the Bible and it's central to the hope of Christianity. And, and honestly, friends, Despite the fact that it can come off as a little bit jargony, the meaning up, up under this word is actually referring to something that everybody wants. A righteous life is a life that's, that's worthy. It's a life that, that measures up. A life that's validated. A life that is affirmed to be right. Think of righteousness as a kind of standing. And whether we realize it or not, most of us look to make a life that counts, a, a worthy life. Most of us will look for that standing on our own two feet. That's something Paul calls confidence in the flesh. I want you to back up with me in, in, in chapter 3 to where Paul begins his before Christ description of his life. In these verses, he's telling us, here's where I used to look for my righteousness. I wanted validation. I wanted a life that was worthy. Let me show you where I used to dig. And where Paul used to dig is, is, is actually the, the, the terms are going to be different from what you and I might have on our radar. Pretty much the same two places many of us dig for righteousness. He dug in his pedigree, where he comes from, what groups he belongs to, and in his performance, what he'd achieved, what he'd made of himself. Look with me back at verses 4 and 6. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And now he tells us what, what he has in mind with confidence in the flesh. What is it to be confident in, in, in yourself? Well, verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day by the book. I was 
of the people of Israel. This is the nation you wanted to be part of. This is where you wanted citizenship. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. This was one of the tribes that stayed true and so many other ones abandoned God and his ways. Benjamin stayed true. He's like the core of the core. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Even now living surrounded by Greco-Roman culture, I kept the faith. My family stayed true to the Hebrew ways. If you want to be an insider, I was an insider. The best nation, best tribe, best culture. And Paul thought his pedigree made him righteous. Then he moves to his performance. Keep going with me in verse 5. As to the law, the list of rules to follow, well, I was a Pharisee. This was the elite shock troops of law keepers. These were the, the special forces. These were the ones who, who set the pace for everyone else and, and, and whom everyone else thought they could never keep up with. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. We take that as a bad thing? Wouldn't have been, not for Paul's compadres. To, to, to Paul's buddies, persecuting the church was a guy who had, had, enough, uh, had enough conviction to put his money where his mouth was. He, he believed that Jesus was a threat to the religion that was the only way. And so he... he he went for it and tried to drive him out. As to righteousness under the law, he says, blameless. Not that he was perfect, but that he always, he always followed the rules for dealing with it. Anytime he slipped up, he would use the proper sacrifices at the proper times. Paul was the ultimate rule follower, and he thought his performance made him righteous. And now he's saying to these friends, before their heads get turned by teachers who want to add rules onto Jesus... Don't even think about it. Don't even think about it. I'm your best case scenario. The best they could teach you to do, I did and more. If anyone else, he says in verse four, thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Now, you know, guys, I know that the items in this list are not gonna ring our bells. Not many of us would be proud of this, of this resume in particular, but I wonder, can you look past the details of Paul's list and see yourself in that? In the sense of validation you may be tempted to get from, from where you come from, from the groups you belong to, from your performance, what you achieve. If you can't immediately connect with his list, I think perhaps the best place to look to see your tendency towards a confidence in the flesh is where you find yourself comparing to other people. I mean, you can see Paul kind of nudging us in that direction himself. In verse four, he's saying, look, I got more reason than anybody for confidence in the flesh. It, he can go there because he's been paying attention. Right? He's been looking at what other people are up to. He's been comparing his performance to theirs, and he knows, I, I rise above. Right? Where do you find yourself looking around at other people and feeling better? Maybe folks you've outclimbed at work or folks who aren't quite as secure financially as you are, folks that maybe don't have your tastefulness and what you're wearing right now, or even maybe folks that aren't as faithful at church as you, are, as you have been? Where do you find yourself, like the, like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable in Luke 18, saying, thank you, God, at least in your heart, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men? Or where do you, where do you look around and find yourself feeling worse? A sense of inadequacy that you can't keep up, that, that other people are, are, are keeping everything together while you know you're a mess. They seem to coast through life no problem. Their marriages are easy. Their parenting is joyful. It's like one long extended vacation. So, friends, sometimes we can look around and feel better about ourselves. And sometimes we'll look around and feel worse about ourselves. But either way, 
if you find yourself measuring against other people, to use Paul's categories, that's a sign, like a flashing neon sign. Your confidence is in the flesh. You're clinging to a righteousness of your own. You're looking for a validation that you can earn for yourself for better or worse. And Paul's saying to you, don't do it. There's no future there. And praise God, there's a better way. The Bible tells us there's only one validation that matters. There is only one person whose view of you defines who you are, and that's the God who made you. What he sees is what matters. Righteousness in the Bible, I, 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 uh, I said earlier that righteousness behind that word is, is a sense of validation, a sense of, of having been what you're supposed to be. But in, in the Bible, every time it shows up, uh, t- talking in context like this one, it's always about where you stand before God. That's what really matters. What does God see when he sees you? Not what others see and not even what you see. And what Paul is saying is that in Christ, you can have the righteousness that you crave, not because you earned it, because he gives it to you for free. Did you notice this, the way he, way he phrases it in verse 9? I don't want a righteousness of my own. That's one I'm responsible for. I want the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, through just sort of collapsing onto who Jesus is and all that he's already done. In other words, I want the righteousness from God, verse 9, that depends on faith from him into my empty hands. That's the righteousness that I want for my life, Paul says. And that's a righteousness that anybody can get in on, no matter what you've already done. Friends, it may be too late for you to convince yourself of your own righteousness. When you look at yourself and what you've done, that may only ever be a source of shame for you from here on out. That's possible. And and it may not be possible for you to ever have a righteousness in the eyes of the people you've already wronged. There may be some who will never forgive you for what you've done. But when you gain Christ... When you're found in him, when what he's done by his perfect righteousness becomes what you've done because you're in him, then you get to claim a righteousness that comes from God and it's the only one that counts. You can't take credit for it, but you can't ruin it either. You just get to rest in it. And that's better. That's a treasure. Stop digging for rubbish. The treasure's over here. Be found in Christ. That's Paul's word to you this morning. But it doesn't stop there. In Christ, you gain a righteousness you can't find anywhere else. And in Christ, you also gain a relationship that you won't find anywhere else. That's the next treasure in his list of treasures in verses 9 and 10. So he's talking about righteousness in verse 9. And then the next that, that I may know him. Immediately after righteousness, Paul talks about one of the most precious gifts from righteousness is the chance to have peace with God and a relationship that sustains you. This is at the heart of his big transition in verses 7 and 8 too. I count everything as loss, he says, verse 8. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's better to know him. It's like he set up one of those old-timey scales, you know, like the scales of justice. And on, and on one side, he's, he's heaped everything that he used to be known for, all that confidence that he had in his flesh. It's all piled up on this side. And then he throws Jesus onto the other side, knowing Jesus. And there's no comparison. The surpassing worth of Jesus 
blows all that he had out of the water. It makes it nothing more than a pile of trash. And when he talks about knowing Christ here, he's speaking of a, of a deep and intimate and personal relationship. That's this word knowing that he's using. It's the kind of relationship you have with those you love most, the ones that you love to be around, the ones that you depend on for understanding because they know you too, the kind of relationship that you have with a close friend or in a healthy family relationship. It's one thing to know about somebody. Paul once knew a lot about God. He was an expert, even a scholar, of what God had said about himself in the law of Israel. He knew a lot about God in the way my kids know a lot about Luke Skywalker, or the way my wife knows a lot about plants, or I know about George Washington or Frederick Douglass. He knew plenty about them, about him because he'd studied them. But he didn't know him. His relationship wasn't personal. As a Pharisee, assuming he fit the mold that Jesus so often spoke against in his ministry when he talked to Pharisees, the relationship Paul had with God would have been more like a business relationship. The Pharisees, Jesus said, in his ministry, pushing back on them, what he shows is that they weren't, they weren't in love with God. They didn't even love God's law. They used the law for leverage. They obeyed just enough to get what they wanted, but were always looking for loopholes to get the best bang for their buck. It reminds me of a story I came across this week about a small-time banjo player from Mississippi back in the early 20th century uh, this guy, this fellow wasn't a very religious man until he was playing in a nightclub one night and it caught fire and he thought he was going to be burned up. And so, this is a quote from this story, he prayed desperately to his Lord, offering an instant trade. If the Lord would get him out of there alive and undamaged, he would commit his life to him. As part of the bargain, he never played the banjo again. God offered what he had asked for and he paid the price he'd promised. But as he kept on living for God, at some point the equation shifted into his favor. Later he got to believe, he got to where he believed that God owed him. A few years after this, this conversion experience, for lack of a better word, that he had in the nightclub, he was out chopping trees for firewood and one of his young sons had come out with him and had fallen asleep and was taking a nap and he didn't see him and he chopped down the tree and the tree is falling right to where his young son is laying there asleep. And at that exact moment, he cried out to God, don't let that tree hit the boy. And it was as if the tree hesitated, he says. And the boy jumped out of the way. And here was his conclusion when asked by his son, how did that happen? He said, quote, a man should live his life in a way that God will obey him. A man should live his life in a way that God will obey him. God will do what he says. God will owe him. That's a business relationship. There's nothing personal there. What Paul had when he had confidence in the flesh was, was more like this. What he's gained in Christ now is personal. It's a relationship of intimacy and depth and love. So much so, friends, that Paul can write about it here and it's surpassing worth while he's in prison with nothing to his name. All he's got now is Jesus. And, and it's like he knows. It's like he almost anticipates that that's what they'll be thinking because in verse seven he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's past tense. I decided I wasn't gonna go after the things I was going after. I was gonna be with Jesus. And it's almost like he can see them reasoning out, yeah, but now, Paul, you're in prison. You got nothing. Surely now, 
you wish you hadn't done what you'd done. And so in verse, in verse 8, he switches to the present tense. Look at this. Indeed, I count everything as lost. Me, in prison, with nothing. I count it all as lost. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I've got no regrets. I've got nothing but Jesus, and it's worth it. Friends, don't you want a relationship like that? One where you can face anything as long as he's with you. Friends, that, that's an unlosable treasure. Everything else is just rubbish. When your confidence is in the flesh, the best you can hope for is to put God in your debt, at least for a little bit until you trip up. But when you gain Christ, you gain a friend. You gain a relationship that you were made to crave and that you won't find anywhere else. There's one more treasure in this list of treasures that I want to draw your attention to before we're done this morning. In Christ, when you gain him, you gain a righteousness you won't find anywhere else. You gain a relationship you won't find anywhere else. And finally, you gain a resurrection you can't find anywhere else. Look back with me at these verses. He's counted everything as rubbish, that he may gain Christ, that's verse 8, and be found in him, that's verse 9, having a righteous, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Verse 10, that I may know him, and now that I may know the power of his resurrection. Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I know that kind of like righteousness uh, th this word resurrection is not a word or a concept that takes up much space in most of our brains most of the time. We have a bit of work to do for that reason to see why it's so important to Paul, why he's so taken up with this promise that in Christ he can be raised again from the dead. See, if you look at, if you look at Paul's old life, how hard driving he was, how relentless, how focused, how performance oriented. What I see there is, is, is almost like a guy who who would have resonated with what you hear folks say today sometimes. Live now, live your life now as if you're writing your own obituary or your epitaph. Have you ever heard that? It's kind of a cliche at this point. It's often, it's often spoken of. I, I, uh, I recently saw an article by a leadership development guru, a consultant for, for business executives, writing about how he likes to challenge his, his high-performing types when he's coaching them with what he calls the epitaph question. You know, to call him to get out of the rat race of career advancement and chasing bonuses and the latest luxury cars. And, and think about what you want to be said at your funeral, what you want to be written on your tombstone. Be that guy. What would that be? He lists several examples that people often go to. Well, I'd like people to say that I made a positive difference in their lives, that I was their source of inspiration. That's one common answer. I'd like to be remembered as someone that lived life by my own rules, not afraid to take risks, a person able to follow my own path, Another wrote that I'd like to be remembered as a person who always stuck to my values, being true to myself, never being a fake. I'd like to be remembered, wrote another, as someone who always made the extra effort in everything I did, someone who tried my best. You can almost see Paul doing that same kind of equation. I've got it going on. As to the law of Pharisee, as to righteousness of the law, blameless. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's writing, he's etching this epitaph in advance. And there is a little bit of wisdom in looking at your life that way, I guess. To remember that it's short, that it isn't going to last forever, that you want to make the most of the time you have and leave a good taste in the mouth of the people around you. But, but still, it's, 
it's more than a little bit short-sighted, isn't it? If what makes your life meaningful is the idea of leaving a legacy behind you, that you'll live on in the memory of others, friends, I'm, I'm afraid your life won't be meaningful enough. If you do that, if that's your goal, you'll spend your life digging for rubbish. What you think you've gained will really be loss. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my family was on a, a trip to see extended family in Alabama, where we're from, out in the middle of nowhere in the southwest corner of the state. And on a trip down to this amazing quilting community called G's Bend, we, we were just going to see them in action, and, and it's something I've always wanted to do. It's about an hour drive from where we were, and we're driving out really, really remote area, surrounded by river on all sides. And on the way into this area, we passed a sign for a cemetery. It was 200 years old. So we said, of course, we're going to stop. I mean, clearly. So, so we, we, we go, we do the G's Bend tour, we come back, and we pull off the road next to this cemetery sign and walk back into the middle of this tangled woods. It looked like we'd probably been the first people to even walk this path in, in years. And we have to look hard. There's no signage beyond the one on the road for even where this cemetery is. It's completely overgrown. There's, there's trees coming up in the midst of all the, the, the plots. There's, there's vines tangled. The, the stones that are still there are mostly crumbled or the... The, the, the face of them, the, the etchings have been worn away by time. When 200 years after you're gone, the epitaph is gone along with anyone who knew you or your character or your breeding or your money or your accomplishment. What you're left with, friends, is a crumbling piece of stone at best. You know what was more common in this cemetery? Just sunken places in the ground. The stones were long gone. You only know there was a grave there because it's caved. Literally a nothing. Literally loss. If you aim your life for an epitaph and try to validate your life on your own, friend, you're not leaving a legacy, not ultimately. More likely, as John Updike put it about his work, You're just pedaling a bicycle that'll only keep going as long as you do. When you stop pedaling, it falls. So see Paul's words to us again. A loving but honest and direct and sobering warning. Don't put your confidence in the flesh. It's not enough. You won't have a better epitaph than Paul did. If that's what you're after, he's your best case scenario. It won't last. Zoomed out far enough, what you're digging for is just trash. And there's treasure over here. I've seen it. I've had it. I'm found in him now. That means one day I will know the power of his resurrection. One day I will attain to the resurrection of the dead. One day, a little later in this chapter, he writes, he will come back for me. And I will have a glorified body, a glorious one. He'll transform this lowly body that's already decaying, even now, into a body like his. Friends, at the center of the Christian hope is that a great power has broken into our broken world. When the broken body of Jesus walked out of his grave once and for all, not just healed, but transformed and glorious. And with that, the promise that what happened to him could just as soon happen to us too if we'll look away from our prideful and confident immortality projects, from trying to make a name for ourselves that'll last and just take his name for our own. There is so much more to hope for 
in your life than a few lines of nice words on a stone that'll one day crumble. And what Paul is telling us right here is that that more is found when you gain him. Friends, please, don't waste your time trying to win a race to nowhere that no one's gonna remember. Don't dig in the dirt for rubbish. There is a treasure you could have for free this morning. If you've not trusted in him, you can. The only cost to you to get in on that future is to admit that your hands are empty, that you have nothing to bargain with, that you come to him with rubbish and ask him for his treasure and give him a chance to be true to his word that he'll give it to you. Because when you come open-handed begging for Jesus, when you make the exchange Paul describes in verses seven and eight, Jesus is exactly what you'll gain. It is God's pleasure to give him to you if you will come. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts that long for this treasure and that won't settle for any substitute. Do this work by the power of your spirit, we pray. Not because we deserve it, but because of your steadfast love that's offered it to us. In Jesus' name, amen.